What's up, y'all? It's Jeff Cobb, and you're listening to Ricky and Clive Wrestling Show on Social Suplex Podcast Network. You're listening to the Ricky and Clive Wrestling Show. Listener discretion is advised at all times. Thank you once again for downloading and listening to another episode of the Ricky and Clive Wrestling Show, part of the Social Suplex Podcast Network. My name's Clive and I'm joined by my partner Ricky. Good evening Ricky and how are you tonight? Good evening, um, doing very, very well yourself? I'm alright, thank you. Um, just thought we'd let the listeners know in case they're wondering why this is out a day early. Uh, Ricky has some party time tomorrow night, he's attending a wedding so we're Recording a night early, just for a one-off, so don't get used to the Tuesday shows. Just a wee bonus for you to bring in the start, early start of your week kind of thing. Yep, and as Clive says, I'm attending a wedding tomorrow. Um, so I will most definitely post a selfie of what I'm wearing on Facebook, so you know, keep an eye out for that. Oh, that's right, the the good old selfie, Facebook selfies. One day, <laughs> one day they'll go viral. Very, very unlikely. <laughs> very unlikely. But you will get to see the best looking man on Social Suplex Podcast if you if you have a look at my Facebook profile. Sorry, Josh, but the people have spoken and it's me. Do you mean you are the people? Well, I mean, I'm not going to start naming names, but there's people who have said I'm, I'm the better looking one, you know. No offence, Josh is a good looking guy, but uh, you just can't compete, Josh. Anyway, before <laughs> before we talk about the main topic of tonight, you want to let the listeners know of any future plans we may have for the Ricky and Clive Wrestling Show? Yes, um, this is the last ever episode, folks. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, well, in the first week of September, we've penciled in the date. We just we believe it's going to go ahead. Um, it should go ahead, providing there's no last-minute hiccups, but we've got a a little project, a panel-type podcast we're doing with the Outsider's Edge, Ray, uh, Rance and Carl, and uh, Mr. Kyle Moores will also be appearing. It's going to be a two-part thing, and we're going to release it, like, in, let's say, in two parts over both shows. So part one will be on one show, and part two will be on the other. Um, okay, looking forward to that. So again, that was in the first week of September, I believe, is it Monday the 2nd or the 3rd we've penciled it in for. And the next one um, is only a couple of weeks away. Well, again, I'm not wanting to name names or anything like that, So, but we've pulled in probably the biggest fish on the Social Suplex podcast network who has agreed, who's going to come on the Ricky and Clive show. Again, we just need to sort out dates and times, but we believe that's going to go ahead and there may be more than one special guest that day. We're just trying to figure a few things out. 
with regards to these things, don't get your hopes up too much because hashtag card subject to change. <laughs> but we don't expect this card to change, though. Hopefully not. Is that us? Yeah, I mean, that's us unless you want me to continue talking about the best little man on social suplex. We can get on with the show. Let's get on with the show then, shall we? <laughs> so, SummerSlam is looming. 2018 version and we thought we would do what we've been doing the last few sort of pay-per-views where we take a trip down memory lane look at previous summer slams what are the best matches have been what the best angles have been just to sort of with the current product not being that great at the moment I thought it would be good to let our listeners have a wee trip a wee nostalgia trip and I hope you'll enjoy going down that road with us so the first question I will ask you Ricky is what was the first summer slam you saw Oh, um, first SummerSlam I saw. So I, I don't think I can give you like a specific answer to that because I'm not entirely sure. But I would say my first memory of a SummerSlam was most likely the one at Wembley, mm-hmm. Bret Hart and the British Bulldog. The other one that stands out as well was Bret Hart versus Undertaker with Shawn Michaels as a special guest referee. Was it 97 maybe that was, I think? That's right, yeah. And the Bulldog, um, Bret Hart was 95. I would I would say, like I say, that's probably the one that stands out the most. Just so, that's yeah. one I can probably remember the clearest. Yeah, I think it was um, 92. Out of all the early ones. 92, the Bret Hart Bulldog one. Was it 92? All right, okay, mm-hmm. sorry. That's Are you sure good. it was 92? Uh-huh. Well, yeah, I suppose then, actually, but... <laughs> yeah, 92, but like I say, that, that's not at the time of watching it, because at that time, I'm only five, so I'm not going to remember that far back. But like I say, that's probably when when, when someone you ask me that question, SummerSlam, that's the first thing that comes into my mind. Mm. Um, just sort of going back, trying to think back on the ones that I have watched. Well, that... 1992 one was the same one I saw for the first time I think I got it from Blockbuster Video I think it was even it was even called Ritz Videos at the time I think where I rented out SummerSlam 92 bear in mind by the time it came to video I was only about 7 or 8 so I've got very sketchy memory of watching that at the time but I know that was my first one when I officially entered the fandom, I think it was SummerSlam 99, where I had a VHS of that. You had the Test Chain Street Fight. No, ah, it was a street fight. Um, the Triple Threat with Austin, Mankind and Triple H. So that was the first one that I remember seeing properly when I was officially a WWF fan. The, I remember my first takeaway from that was the amount of Irish whips on show in that pay-per-view were a bit too much. So I think you should go back and watch it and agree with me on that one. I'll go back and watch it and see if I do agree. A wee thing about SummerSlam 2000, this is one where I actually had I owned the VHS. don't know how I managed to acquire it because I didn't have Sky Sports back in the day, but I owned a VHS of SummerSlam 2000. Uh, I watched it regularly, but one night when I stuck it on, halfway through the show, all of a sudden it would appear that a certain... I won't name names, but a certain sibling of mine taped it over with a porn, a soft porno. <laughs> I was not happy. That was probably the only time in my teens where I was upset at seeing a porno on a VHS tape. <laughs> oh, 
Uh, what's a porno? I, I don't. I, I'm not sure what, what that is. <sighs> you should really name the sibling. No, don't, don't, don't. Awkward silence. Let's move on. Yep. So one of the sort of main topics we wanted to talk about was not so much the matches themselves, but certain moments of these matches or storylines that had the most sort of pivotal movement going forward as far as like the WWF's, WWE, their future was concerned. One of the first ones I was wanting to talk about was, as we mentioned earlier, Bret Hart versus British Bulldog at Wembley. That took place at in London. First time and only time where a major pay-per-view has happened outside of North America, as far as I'm aware. Um, first time... Well, it was the last time until recently between Seth and Dolph Ziggler where the Intercontinental Championship main evented a pay-per-view. And I think that, I know he was a big deal in the tag team scene with the Hart Foundation, but I think this was this got the ball rolling with regards to Bret Hart becoming a like Mr. WWF. Would you agree with that sentiment? Yeah, because there was like a... I'm, I'm not going to... I can't remember the specific... Specific amount of time, but it was at least a couple a couple of years stretch where he was like sort of the baby face of the company before he ultimately remember when he turned heel and had that whole pro Canada anti US gimmick that uh-huh. they had. Yeah, with the rest of the foundation. Um, yeah, yeah, I would agree because it was like a hundred thousand people um, at that show as well. I always, I always remember where Brett. Uh, it might have been on the Austin podcast, I'm not entirely sure. And this is one of the things I absolutely love about Pretty Hart, that everything that he'd done in the ring or in, on the mic, etc., everything had a meaning behind it. He didn't do something just for the sake of doing it. I remember on that podcast he spoke about how at the end where British Bulldog's wife, his sister, comes down and they're celebrating together in what the plan was for Bulldog to sort of try and embrace Brett, but Brett initially is a bit hesitant, initially doesn't want to do it, and then ultimately sort of, just to sort of take, like, keep the motion going and maybe have that whole thing, is Brett going to turn on him or is he going to refuse and be like the bad guy, the sore loser, but he says they were just going to embrace them just to give the crowd that little bit extra of emotion, um, but Bulldog... I think in the heat of the moment, just kind of forgot that and just embraced Brett, but Brett was like, fuck, we just missed a great chance to sort of toy with people's emotions, and that's one of the things I absolutely love about Brett. Uh-huh. That, like I say, it's everything he done, whether it's from a kick to a move to whatever, anything, it all tied in with the story and it all meant something to the match in the grand scheme of things. But like I said, there was a, that period before he turned heel where he was the man, you know, the absolute prototypical old-fashioned, lovable babyface. Um, down uh, coming down, giving his sunglasses to kids in the crowd, etc., and just being that clean-cut guy that you like. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of my early memories memories of wrestling are a lot of Bret Hart. Yeah, I've read the uh, his autobiography recently and he goes into quite a lot of detail about that match and how it was a masterpiece and what's miraculous about it is as far as we're led to believe Davy Boy was basically off his face on drugs during that match like they couldn't it couldn't be found beforehand 
they managed to get a hold of him and he was still out of it and Brett literally carried him through that whole match and it's still one of the classics that's talked about 25, 26 years later. So that's a good testament to how how much of a worker Brett Hart is. I mean, like if you just take pure in-ring ability and what you do in the ring, like pound for pound, there's like some can easily argue Brett is the greatest wrestler ever. Um, for me, like different factors go into deciding who the greatest is, but if we're going purely for the ring ability, you know, very few, if any, were better than him in the ring. Mm-hmm. And he's alongside Undertaker as my absolute all-time favourite as well. Well, those two are your favourites, and they had a match, as you mentioned earlier, at SummerSlam 97. Uh, and that sort of got the ball rolling, whether kayfabe or not, about the whole Montreal screwjob later on at Survivor Series. But that, that match on its own was still really good as well. Yeah, um and obviously you had the, the added element <clears throat> of HBK um, yes. being the referee. And ultimately, he, him costing the Undertaker the match when uh, Brett spits on him and he swings the chair and, and hits Taker. Um, and even when he was doing a count, you can see in his face and his, his body language, etc., that he really didn't want to do it because kayfabe-wise and personally they just didn't like one another and, and that pain across HBK's face was etched and you could see it so clearly like <laughs> just go just at a time remember watching that match um, Brett was the heel and Taker was the face like the good guy so from a cafe point of view like you say he's 90, what was it 7 so yeah I'm 10 years old and you know I'm still cheering the good guys and booting the bad guys Um and I remember Brett had Thundertaker in the sharpshooter. Taker sort of sit, uh, comes up in his arms almost pressing up and, and kicks out, powers out, and Brett goes sort of rolling out of the ring. I remember at the time when I was watching it, it was like, oh my goodness, like you were so you were like you were it was excitement, you were giddy because you were like he just kicked out the sharpshooter and at the time the sharpshooter was so protected and, and no one, even on commentary, I remember, um, I've watched it a few times, I think they make reference to how no one ever kicks out the sharpshooter. Mm-hmm. And I felt, at the time, it felt a big thing because you were like, oh my goodness, like, he must, he actually is like supernatural, he managed to do that. And now looking back on it, it was kind of iconic as well that he kicked out of it. Um, I remember sitting, well, I say he's 10 years old and I was just, I've sort of heartbroken the Undertaker lost. Um, and just, let's like say, looking back on it, that probably isn't just one of my all-time favourite SummerSlam matches. That's one of my absolute all-time favourite matches. Um, and like I say, it just so happens my two favourite of all time were in that match. They didn't have much interaction with each other, did they? Brett and Taker? In terms of feuds and matches, not really, just I don't over, think. Just overall? Mm-hmm. See, when you think, I know during that time, this is when WWF were in their quote-unquote rating slump and WCW were trouncing them every week. And I know at the time, NWO was riding on a high and probably around that time as well, Sting was hanging in the rafters waiting to take on Hogan at Starcade. But see, when you have this stuff going on with Austin 
Own Heart, Pillman, Shamrock, Bret Hart, like all the Heart Foundation, and it came to a head at the In Your House pay-per-view. Canadian Stampede, that 5v5, which was just a hotbed, hot mess of a match, unbelievable. And the story continues on to the next pay-per-view. Uh, there's lots of stipulations in the matches involving the Heart Foundation guys. It's it's bizarre to me that the story that was going on here, it seemed to me so much better than, this may be a controversial opinion, but it seems like it was much better than Sting just hanging about in the rafters and it's perplexing why that wasn't beating the ratings, winning the ratings war. So, like, I watched WCW, but not as much as I watched WWE slash WWF. The thing with Sting and Hogan was that Sting was the one that was going to take the company back in the sense that we've lost our way, we've lost our identity, and it's all because of you, Hogan, and the NWO. And it was like, here, you've come in from the WWF and you're bleeding this company dry and all you care about is yourself. But I'm here to save the company that I love and I've always been with. So there was that element to it, and I think that was... Now, someone might correct me if I'm wrong, but that element kind of came through on TV as well. Um, Let's say Sting was their version of The Undertaker, sort of their glue. And that was, like, too... Like, obviously, we have... Whatever Hulk Hogan say, whatever, like, if things that he's been doing nowadays and what he's been doing recently, but we still acknowledge that that was one of the absolute two of the absolute all-time greats. And that alone would have pulled people in. Just sort of like, what is Sting going to do? Is he going to finally come down? What's he going to do? So I think that helped. But, no, I agree. I think for a long time, the WWF had, like, great matches. Um, Probably had the better wrestlers. I don't want to say probably uh, WCW had a lot, but WCW had, like, the star power. The better main eventers were in WWF wrestling style. I know that WCW had the excellent cruiserweight scene. Um, but they had they had the star power though as well. They, like you say, with the NWO, we had three of the bigger stars in wrestling at that point, and then coupled in with Sting, etc., and some other people eventually moving over. Just thinking back retrospectively, truly Bret Hart being a heel in the rest of the US in USA, but he's a face in Canada. That just seems fascinating to me that that's not getting more of the ratings in. For me, ratings don't mean much today, but I think they did back in, back then. Well, like I say, I think it was just because some of the absolute biggest stars in wrestling at that point were at WCW, because remember, Hogan, not Hogan, sorry, Austin wasn't Austin. The um, Rock wasn't The Rock. You know, um, it was Hunt, Triple H wasn't Triple H, IGA, etc., etc., they were on the cusp, but like I say, that was. We still had, let's say, the NWO Sting show. Um, you had, like I say, all those cruiserweights, etc. So, like you say, I just think when it came down to it, there was more star power over on WCW at that moment in time. Well, speaking of star power, and the same night, SummerSlam 1997, I'll ask you a question. If. Austin did not break his neck and Owen Hart's sort of modified tombstone pile driver. 
do you think he would have went on to become the massive success story that he did? Is it is that too much of a snapshot moment in history? Um, maybe. Because, but, see, when you think but, about it, yep. sorry, I know I asked you a question and I'm answering it myself, but that gave up something creative where Austin started butting heads with Vince and Vince wasn't letting him wrestle and that gave us the first Vince McMahon's receipt of the stunner and it just sort of snowballed from there. So it's, it's a very hard question to answer, but it's worth thinking about. I think <clears throat> what, like, injuries are never great, but I can't even say the beauty of that injury because that's not correct, but the good thing, if it was a good thing to come from, it was that he himself had to then change his wrestling style. Yes. Which, in turn, suited the Stone Cold Steve Austin character. That we all know and love. Yes, because the character who drank beer, walked in, beat the living hell out of everyone, gave stunners, etc., etc., that married in so well with his brawn style then. Because if he continued being like the technical wrestler, coupled in, because he still had brawling moments as well. But like he says, he became more, more known as a brawler. Um, I think, like he says, that just seemed to marry up so nicely. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe he, like you just never know, obviously. But like I says, I think him having to force force to change his wrestling style definitely definitely helped with that character. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I say, you just don't know how well or how over or what might have happened if he continued being like the technical wrestler that he was. Because like I say, he changed to a brawling style. Couple, like, even though he had the brawling style, he still had moments in the match where he showed off great technique, etc. But we don't really ever associate Austin with having like the in-ring technique ability of um, a Bret Hart, etc. Which is kind of a shame because he was really, really good technically in the ring. Uh, it used to be like it was called the ringmasters for a reason exactly so I think to answer your question yeah I think I think that it was it probably did help him because I say I think more than anything because you were able to like you say have that on screen storyline with Vince McMahon not letting him wrestle maybe they might have done that in a different way if he didn't get hurt but then, like I said, but more than anything, it felt like you said because the wrestling set was forced to change. It just it tied in beautifully with that character who, like I said, it was just all no uh, all fists, all kicking and punching. No fists, just fists. No, that's it. So, and like I said, it was it was perfect, the absolute perfect blend from a gimmick and a character point of view, coupled married with the his wrestling style. Well, whatever the real reason was that Austin got over, I think that does play a, if any part, it does play a part in it, I would say. It's just unfortunate that his overall health has suffered as a result, I suppose. And I think when you go back and look at it, he was literally, (laughs) he was rolling about, he was lying on on the ground for what felt like a good three or four minutes. Now, I don't know if it probably wasn't as long as that, but it just certainly felt like it. Um, so you know credit to Owen where granted obviously was told but then Owen just starts being a little heel and just sort of um, annoying the crowd and 
and making not so much making fun, but just being being a heel. Um, we can forget about how the match actually finished because, like I say, it was so so hurt. But on 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 done well there, just a sort of delay mm-hmm. tactics. Because um, we all now know, looking back on it, how badly he was hurt. But at the time, as young kids, you might have just been like, Owen's just being a heel, just being a bad guy, just being cocky and arrogant instead of trying to go for out the cover. Ah, you don't think about things like that when you're younger? No, no, you don't. But, like you say, I think that was a very good question that you raised. Um, bottom line is, maybe they did have something planned in the future for him, but, like I say, for me, it's just, it worked out perfectly. That was that was one good thing to come from that injury. Aye. Just in the sense that it's, you know, the wrestling style changed, which, just like I say, which married or made the character and the gimmick even better. Well, sort of fast-forwarding through all a few years, uh, as we all know, Austin became an absolute megastar to the point where a few years later he was very protective of his character and he wasn't. He was only willing to do certain things to get wrestlers over. We all know the story now about Bret Hart. Eh, sorry, Bret Hart. Steve Austin was going to lose in a King of the Ring qualifier against Brock Lesnar in 2002. Austin took his ball and went home, as he's said himself many a time. That didn't stop Brock Lesnar becoming King of the Ring and going marching on to SummerSlam to face The Rock, SummerSlam 2002. And it was at the time he was the youngest wrestler to win the World Championship. That was later won by Randy Orton. But at the time, Brock Lesnar, his rise to the top was less than six months. The Rock put him over. Obviously, The Rock was going to Hollywood, so that does help matters. But I would say that is a pivotal moment for Brock Lesnar's career and just how much of a devastating behemoth he was, especially in his his first run for WWE. I mean, we talk about how Kurt Angle made his wrestling debut and then like a year later at the most it was, he was in the ring with The Rock, Austin, all these greats. I understand Brock still had experience before coming into WWE, but this was also, I wouldn't say as big, but it was it was huge because, like you say, it was like half a year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he dismantles The Rock. Like you said, The Rock, obviously going to Hollywood, but he could have been saying, no, no, I would, I, no, I'm not doing it. So credit to The Rock for for deciding to, quote-unquote, put Rock Lesnar over. Um, so, yeah, like, that's just sort of it just sort of put the cherry on top of the cake and it was almost that emphatic statement that this guy legitimately is an absolute badass. The match itself, I think, only lasted about 12 or 13 minutes or so as well. One of the things that I miss in today's product is when wrestlers just rush the ring. And if I remember correctly, because now you've got all the ring announcers and stuff these days to do the tail of the tape. Mm-hmm. And that's fine now and again, but I remember Brock was already in the ring. The Rock's music kit, he was at the bottom of the ramp, or the top of the ramp, doing his usual sort of dancing about, gyrating all over the place. And he just laid the belt down and sprinted to the ring and they just went off on each other. And that gave that match a real sense of urgency. Uh, and it just didn't let up pace-wise for the rest of that match. And and didn't Rock put Heyman through the commentary table as well? Hopefully. <laughs> Pretty certainly put him through for rock bottom. Aye, uh, he probably did. 
I remember um, there was a bit of a botch in it where Lesnar basically missed being being hit by a slap for the rock and just cartwheeled over the top rope, but <laughs> you could put that down to being green. It was probably written in the match in terms of how it was produced and stuff like that, but overall, it was a shocking moment, and that shock, like the sort of the gravity of how devastating Brock Lesnar was, kept going for a few months because he was basically immediately put into a programme with Undertaker on SmackDown, which led to their um, Hell in a Cell match at No Mercy 2002. Mm-hmm. And pff, not only was that shocking visually, with the, the gore on offer, the blood, I've never, one of the worst Crimson Masks I've ever seen on Undertaker in that match, but Brock Lesnar reversing a tombstone with ease, laying out Undertaker and pinning him 1-2-3 to retain against the Undertaker who had hit back to his sort of fitness doesn't matter if he's fit or not it's the Undertaker and he literally just ripped him apart and that was just a shocking moment I know this isn't SummerSlam we're talking about but what we're talking about here is like moments that sort of changed the history the future sorry of WWE at the time and that SummerSlam match was definitely one of them and and you could almost if you wanted you could find some parallels in the sense that when he beat The Rock and then what he went on to do after even before it when he was booked on Absolute Beast remember he he um, beat The Undertaker and ended the streak he then went on to beat John Cena and that's when the whole um, the part time champ or whatever but the first time round I, I actually didn't mind his his run his dominance um, yeah and that's what it was it was absolute dominance until Wrestlemania and probably and like I say, he was booked well after that as well, after WrestleMania, because he went off TV, he was written off TV after, you know, just killing everyone. Um, and we've got the whole iconic moment where he rips Seth Rollins' uh, Cadillac apart as well. Um, so, like I say, I think there's some some sort of parallels there, just in the booking before winning the title on both occasions, and then how he was booked after it as well. He, he, was, he was booked he was booked like a beast the first time round, and again has been this time around as well. Uh-huh. And, and the fact is, there's only been about seven or eight guys that have actually beaten Brock Lesnar in, in both runs combined. I saw that list recently, actually. It, the list many. itself was who? Taker. Triple H. Show. Yes. Show was on it. I remember um, hating that match at Survivor Series. <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember who else. Um, Cena. But there was one glaring omission from the list, I believe, as well. Guerrero? Oh, th- did, did Benoit not make him tap in a match? See, off the top of my head, I can't remember Benoit and um, Lesnar ever fighting. They probably did on Smackdown or something, but I can't remember it happening. I need to Google it then. Um, I'm almost certain. It might have been, I think it was a Smackdown. Obviously, a few of these ones did have interference, with Goldberg interfering in the Guerrero match at No Way Out. Mm-hmm. But it's still, a, it's still a W at the end of the day. Yep. Yep. See? But as I said, bottom line is, like, from day one, he's been booked a certain way, and he's been booked that same way both in both runs. Aye. See, you're speaking about SummerSlam 14 there. One of the matches that going into it, there was a hot story between um, Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose 
but you wondered how they would work this lumberjack gimmick that they had. And the reason I wanted to talk about this one was, although it was a lumberjack match, it's it's not even a case of arguing it. It is probably the best lumberjack match that they've done in WWE. Uh, the story that was told in that, just chaos for 14, 15 minutes. They wrestled all around the arena. Uh, and it was one of the first gimmicks that they had together. Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose have repeatedly sort of redefined gimmick matches that they've had over the years with the likes of their uh, ladder match as well, the Hell in a Cell match that they had. I just wanted to bring that up because three, like this was at the heat of the sort of the top of their sort of hatred for each other. And then two, uh, three years later it was at SummerSlam 2017, they just reunited and they won the tag titles in one of the best matches that take best tag team title matches they've had at SummerSlam. And it was quite interesting that there's the parallels again. Three years down the line, they go from hating to each other and then they're back to loving each other again as brothers and they, they defeated the bar in the process. I thought it was a, a nice wee parallel there. And, and I think, not specifically even about that Lumberjack match, um, just in general, like post-Shield breakup, like Dean Ambrose was cutting probably arguably the best promos in the company at that point. He was white, 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 white hot. Like ridiculous. Um people absolutely loved him. Uh, he got this whole lunatic fringe gimmick at the time as well. Uh like I say what they two done together was just ridiculous, but specifically about Ambrose, like you say, he that was one of some of the he was getting some of the biggest pops you've heard in a long time. People were clamouring for him. The same way we're kind of clamouring for him now. but it was probably on a higher scale back then. Uh-huh. Um he for me developed even more of a character or of a deep character post shield breakup than maybe any of them. Dean? Yes. I think over the three years Maybe Seth now, because he's had the redemption and then he's had this great year with his yep. Monday Night Rollins and stuff. But, but at that point, no, I think Dean was the hottest out of the three. Oh, oh why? Big like, time. Like, I don't think that's even debatable. No. Um, and like he says now, a few years down the line, last year, they reunited to take on the bar as well. And even that story was was beautifully told as well. Uh, culminating in a real, a really, really excellent match um, at SummerSlam against the Bar last year, where they won yeah. the titles as well. It was where for me Seth came full circle. I know he beat Triple H at WrestleMania, but it still wasn't sort of universally accepted by the fan base. Whereas when it came to SummerSlam, um, it had, I believe that was when it came full circle, and it was became the sort of darling of the fans' eyes. Because that's the thing, like a lot of people when Seth was hurt and when he came back, people were clamouring for him to come back as a face because we were we were just, you know, we were desperate for him to get for him to come back. And then, like I say, some people might have think they missed the boat and and he eventually turned um, face about was it maybe about three three months later or so was it maybe um, when Triple H attacked him on Raw. Uh-huh. But like you say, it took a while. It took a while for people to accept him as a face because um, maybe it just didn't work out the way it was. But I think a lot of that might have had to do with the fact that 
he was in that feud with Triple H and we might have had mm. higher expectations and I think on top of that as well where he got hurt and so you're kind of limited to how you, how much you can actually build up the feud and how what you how, how you're going to get him over more over as a face because um, remember he was hurt in the build up to Triple H match yep. so sorry yeah I know uh-huh. so like you say it has come full circle and like you say it was it was a the weeks building up to the reunion with Ambrose that he that people finally like you said universally accept him and from then he's literally just arguably come the number one babyface in the company I am um, and it's kind of like and then when you go back and when you would go back and look at his heel work as well it was like this was someone we were we thought would be the face when they eventually broke up but look how well he played the heel as well I know um, like I still to this day I think I would probably still say I, 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 I preferred heel Seth than I do to face Seth ooh I just, you know, like I said, because that title run he had was just, was just, it was just some of the best work we've seen in a long time. Um, I thought that entire run was excellent, and it was just that whole evil, snivelling, like, like he had this sort of evil laugh as well. Um, but like he says, it took him about a year, I just mean... shy of a year, to get fully over his face. Um, I don't know how much credit... I don't think you can give all the credit to the Shield reunion. I think people are slowly starting to accept them. Um, but I think that Triple H feud, for a lot of people, it just didn't live up to expectations. And I think that's what kind of dampened it. Uh, this face there from this way, maybe some people just didn't fully embrace him. Uh-huh. The, I would be inclined to agree with you with him being a better heel. But the first half of this year makes me think otherwise. And I said, like, but do remember he was involved in some some real great matches when he was a heel. Like, just every single moment in the D'Ambrose food was excellent. Uh-huh. Um, when he eventually won the title, he had that whole stuff with Cena and when he beat Cena and uh, he had Cena and the Sting in, um, in the same night. Uh, he, he was, uh, like I say, as a heel, he was, he was excellent. He was really, really good. Um, I, I, I say I think I just preferred as heel as him as a heel champion. But I, you, I don't think you can. I might sound that I'm going to contradict myself a little, but his matches this last year have probably been the best he's produced. Um, his matches consistently. Are, uh-huh. So maybe character work was better back then. You think? I think that's what probably really put him over the top was because I didn't think. At the time, it all everyone assumed it was always going to be Ambrose that was going to turn. So I never ever envisioned Seth as a as a heel. I never had that thought going through my head at all, and I didn't because I didn't think it would work. And Ambrose as a face, I always assumed it'd be the other way around. But Seth as a heel really surprised a lot of people. Aye, well, his heel run was good. I've uh, matured a wee bit as a fan since his heel run. I remember not being a fan of the the chicken heel shit shit heel stuff that he was doing. Looking back, I can accept it and respect it, but there was one finish of a match that I just truly despised, and I hate it to this day, was when at SummerSlam 2015, it was title for title, Seth Rollins and John Cena, and John 
Stewart came down and cost Cena the match. I hated it. Ah, like that was. Yeah, I didn't really see that. But see, speaking of Cena, he's had quite an interesting time in August on his career for WWE. I and I actually took some notes about the matches that he's had where I think more the most impact has been had. Some of them negative and some of them positive. So, do you want to talk about the positives or the negatives first? Um, go with the negatives. Go with the negatives first, I think. Right. I, well, I don't know if this is a negative or not, actually. John Cena versus Chris Jericho 2005. Excellent match. I remember that was one of my favourite matches of that pay-per-view. And it was one of the first ones where I can remember. It wasn't exactly Let's Go Cena, Cena Sucks, but there was the Let's Go Cena, Let's Go Jericho. And that chant was really loud throughout the whole of that match. And I think that was the turning point for most fans where they started to realise, wait a minute, this John Cena's not the sort of champion that we want. Do you remember that match at all? And do you remember getting that vibe? Like, I think... you can almost, not almost, like, I think you can. You can split Cena's career in half. Mm-hmm. And, you know what I say, disregard, that's not the right word, but look at his first half or the first sort of, like, eight, nine years or whatever of his career and be like, your in-ring, in-ring work was limited and, quite frankly, terrible. And then you look at the next half of, the, say, the last five years or so and say, yes, some of your in-ring work studies, uh, you still need to work on certain things. Like that whole um, STF, like, has been quite terrible from, from day one. But his in-ring, in-ring ability nowadays is so much superior to what it was back then. So for me, it's almost like when you see that first sort of seven or eight years of Cena's career, it's like it was more more of a surprise when you saw good matches, if you know what I mean. Uh-huh, it was. a lot of his matches were, were it was kind of the same. Um, you know, that whole Super Cena where he'll start off, maybe start off a little strong and eventually start getting beat down, beat down, beat down before making a big comeback and hit some of his moves. But, like I said, as you fast forward five, six, seven, eight years or so, like you start to see a more complete wrestler. Because like I said, there was a period when he was doing his US Open Challenge and even just slightly before and after it, there was a period where this guy was just putting on clinic after clinic. And it was almost as if it was the roles or the mentality had been reversed, where back in the day, it was a case of, when is this guy going to have a good match? And then during that period, for about five years ago, it was like, is this guy capable now of having a bad match in a sense? Because the whole US title uh, open challenge was... Like I say, it was producing some real great, great, great matches. It was. Uh-huh. So, like I say, I think it's almost at the point where you kind of expected, like when you when you expect him to have kind of semi-poor matches in his first half of his career, because, uh-huh. like I said, he was extremely limited, extremely limited. Uh, and I'm not saying he's like Bret Hart Shawn Michaels in the ring nowadays but it's almost it's night and night and day when you compare who he is now to what he was back then well that peak that you're talking about I think he has peaked and I think he's on his way down 2016 his match with AJ Styles 
Um, probably this one divides opinion. I know some people don't like it, but one of the better matches he's had in terms of just overall rest, pro wrestling, sports entertainment, whatever you want to call it. But ever since then, he's went way downhill pretty quickly as far as I'm concerned. Um, not a great match against Baron Corbin, and I think this is one of those ones, might not have been him that had the shovel out for Corbin, but Cena was the one that was holding it at the end of the day. Uh, and maybe you could argue that Baron Corbin might not have been a good champion if he'd kept the Money in the Bank briefcase, but Cena just put the nail in the coffin with that one at that SummerSlam. Um, the, the sort of shovel thing was the one I was wanting to talk about more so than his quality of his matches. Where So I've got here in the wee list the Corbin match and the Nexus. You remember the Nexus pay-per-view main event? It was 7v7, SummerSlam 2010. Mm-hmm. Where Cena basically single-handedly took out two or three of the Nexus members after taking a vicious DDT onto the floor outside. Oh, this is still to this day, well, not still to this day, but isn't this match the result of Wade Barrett holding some like animosity towards Cena? Probably. Because who was it? Was it Jericho and Edge? From what um, I remember. Yes. When it was on, whatever podcast it was on, that were they not the ones clamoring that no, Nexus need to go over? Mm-hmm. But it was Cena, it was ultimately like, no, 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 like, this is how it's going down, and that's how and it ultimately went down the way Cena went, said it went down. Not how it went down. I can't remember what podcast that was, but I, I want to kind of say maybe it was John Jericho, and Jericho's the one that said it. Uh, it probably was, I. <laughs> also, talk about um, having sort of creative control or having that kind of power backstage to, to have such a match called the way you want it to go. I know. Um, so I can understand why there might be some resentment towards him from the likes of Barrett. Can you imagine how different it would have been if Nexus had won that match? Exactly, exactly. Um, it was just purely because how good... Like Barrett was good Barrett was good in the ring, but it was more so his Mike Watney's gimmick, etc., which got him really over. Mm-hmm. It was only... Like I said, just how good he was on the mic and how good it was at getting heat, etc., that he was able to move on, move past that and continue on with a couple of other gimmicks as well. But like I say, it was... When, when you have something new, fresh like that, you cannot afford to stifle them or derail any kind of momentum so early on. And, like, they made... Like, with their debut, when they... was one of the best debuts you'll ever see. Because when they started ripping the ring apart and stuff like that, because that was the first time a lot of people have seen, like, what's actually underneath the uh, mat. Such decimation. And it was like, wow, like, that's what... It was like, that's what the ring looks like. Who the fuck are these guys? And so... Like I say, I think when you've got something new, fresh, and exciting like that, you cannot, you cannot derail any kind of momentum they've got. And once that happens, you were like, really, you aren't that much of a threat. Like whatever credibility they built, they lost in the space of a few moments. Uh-huh. All for, I'm not going to sit and walk, don't want to sit and sit and bash Cena, but all for one man's ego. I mean. I know they, they were involved involved in main event matches for quite a while afterwards, but 
as far as I'm aware, not one of them became world champion. Mm-hmm. They had some sort of success in the mid-card more recently, Heath Slater, with the tag well, champs. wasn't... Was Bray not in the original Nexus? Bray was in the second series of NXT. And it was Husky Harris, but I can't remember if he was involved in that or not. So I'm going to Google it right now. Yeah, you can Google it. Good old Husky Harris. I know that Ryback was there. Mm-hmm. Skip Sheffield. <laughs> David Atunga's still employed, but nowhere to be seen. No idea where he is at the moment. Wade Barrett has left the company. He is the sort of commentator slash heel authority figure for World of Sport. So, let me see. That's a nice we had Daniel, for him. Daniel Bryan, but he only lasted a few days. Um, yeah, that's right. Well, I Daniel Bryan was on the sort of winning side, if you know, in that mm-hmm, 77. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying, so the original lot. So it was Barrett, Darren Young, Skip Sheffield, Michael Tarver, Justin Gabriel, Heath Slater, David Otunga, because um, Bray came in October alongside Michael... Uh, Axel. So, well, who, who, who would he? He went the name as Michael McGillicuddy. Yes. Yes. And look so, at how many of them are still there. Two of them. Maybe, maybe three. Let's see. Oh, you got Bray and Curtis Axel. Well, the ori- Daniel Daniel Bryan. Well, from the original, from the original, aye, there's only two. Aye, the original sort of seven team, seven man mm. team that took on took on the WWE at SummerSlam. Well, yeah, one then. Because David Atunga's just basically a pre-show pundit, and Barrett's gone, Young's gone. They're all gone. It's only Heath Slater left. I don't even know what Justin Gabriel's doing with himself these days. He what? I'm pretty sure he wasn't Impact for a while. Right. That but yeah, for, so me, just kind of, for me, it just it boils down to why on earth was that, um, like, the momentum was derailed. Imagine that such a thing happened with the Shield. Oh. Imagine. I don't want to a, imagine that. You know, what if something, I mean, and, and we've seen cases where some people come in hot, but then, let's say, his momentum's just derailed. Like to a lesser extent, you could say um, <clears throat> DIY. Um, so, like I said, that it, it literally just why it would, did just come. Why would you say DIY? Well, I think because they came up with such fanfare, so it was kind of different. Um, just mean, in the sense that you mean revival? No, oh, sorry, why did I say DIY? I meant to say revival. Yes, yes, revival, not DIY. Um, so yeah, like the revival, for instance, because they come up with such fanfare, and I think we expected big things straight away, almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I say, it ultimately, it just comes down to that moment, that match. Because um, like you say, it was it, it tied in with what happened the previous six, seven, eight years. Cena being beat down, rising up, come working from the bottom, hulking up in a sense, and hitting a few moves at the end and, and winning the match Super Cena 
dreadful. It, it, it was it was it was not good. It was not good. One of the ones I'm sitting on the fence with, with regards to it being negative or positive, was from a spectacle standpoint when Lesnar squashed Cena when he hit 16 Germans mm-hmm. uh, and won the title. That was a shocking night and one I'll remember for a long time. But it basically birthed the Suplex City bitch gimmick that we've had for that is four years now, and we're all at the stage where we're fed up with the sight of Lesnar because of this. So would you say that match is actually a negative impact overall? No. All right. No. It's an emphatic no for me. So it's a positive? It, it was a positive for a while. I don't like I don't like what what Lesnar has become. But that match was unbelievably shocking. Yep. It was. Like, Cena must have maybe maybe got a couple of moves in. Um, it was literally... And at the time, the suplex after suplex, it was like, I like this, I like this. This is Just because it was so new and it was just raw. For me, I would spin that as a positive because I enjoyed Lesnar's first run with the title. I know he wasn't always there, but... I, I still enjoyed it. It was handled better back then. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, was it was only for a few months as well. It wasn't a year and a half nearly. But, you know, it was... that. Like I say, that match will go down in history. Um, oh, Cena definitely. has never, ever been beat like that before. Never. No. Well, now you can maybe say The Undertaker, right? <laughs> but we don't really count that as a match that took place there at WrestleMania, but... It was it was truly shocking just because this was John Cena. Like, it, if anything, he does this to other people. This doesn't ever happen to him. Um, in the build up to that, because it was meant to, was it not? Um, who was supposed to be challenging? Oh, was it Randy Orton? And I think Roman kept attacking him, or was it Dean that kept? I can't remember now. And Heyman came out and was like you need to implement Plan C. And at the time, I thought Plan C was um, CM Punk. Oh, God. Like, I t- <laughs> and so I, I kind of didn't expect this, because I was like, oh my God, Plan C, it must be CM Punk. Um, but no, like I say, I thought the match, it was it will go down history just pure because of just how much of a shock value it carried. It kind of, like you said, it started that whole suplex city nonsense um, but yeah no like I say it was for me more than anything the positive about it is because it was just so unexpected and right. it was literally just an absolute beatdown of Cena it was and it has been beaten clean a couple of other times and they both were positive for different reasons the first one we touched on the AJ Styles match I did enjoy that match it was a great popcorn sort of genre if that makes sense but what that said to me was that Top Brass had faith in AJ Styles to become a main event star and he did so because he went on to challenge Dean Ambrose for the title like a month later and won it so they obviously had enough faith in him to be the sort of the face that runs the whatever it was camp the (laughs) chat I can't speak is it not the face that runs the place the champ that runs the camp as well the man who, who 
about SmackDown or whatever it was. He says, not like him. Those two have got excellent chemistry because do. those matches, those matches they had were were excellent, were unbelievably good. Because they had one at Money in the Bank, didn't they? Money in the Bank, and then there was a six-man tag at Battleground. Yep, which I think Cena pinned AJ. I think. I can't was it remember. Cena? I think AJ definitely took the pin there. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, I like I like the SummerSlam match as well. Um, and and again, it was kind of you were half expecting Cena to get that win because you just weren't sure. Do they know what they have in AJ? Really, um, certainly did after like that. Yeah, and I think that's what that's what that match means to me now. Not so much. Oh, he beat John Cena. It was more so they they they, they get it. When it when it happened, oh, they get it, they got it, they got it, they understand who this guy is and what he is and what he's capable of. I think that um, was probably the final stage in the superstar test that Vince may have been running because right after WrestleMania, he went into a couple of month program with Roman Reigns, two of the best sort of world title matches we've seen in a long time. Excellent. Uh, he may have come out short in both of those attempts, but. He was allowed to face Cena at SummerSlam, where Cena, as we have just discussed, has quite a damaging effect on people's careers at SummerSlam. It's very much a... SummerSlam's very much Cena's pay-per-view for me. And for for AJ Styles to get that win means quite a lot in the grand scheme of things. And that's it. I think that's what it boils down to, is that it seems like at that moment in time it was a decision had been made and that decision yes. was, this is our guy, AJ Styles, this is our guy, on this brand, except, or just not even on the brand, just in general, this is one of our absolute top guys, and we're yep. going to start treating him like it. The rocket was well and truly strapped to his back that night. Yep, yep. Speaking of which, a certain Brian Danielson also beat Cena clean at SummerSlam a couple of years previous to that. You want to lead us in with that one? Well, the build, if you just think back, it was, this was when Daniel Bryan was, like, if it wasn't his peak, like, popularity, it was just about damn well close to it. Uh Cena comes out, and he gets to pick who he faces, and he picks Daniel Bryan. The match itself was good, Cena lost clean right in the middle of the ring. Great match, the culmination of this great journey and, and run in that Daniel Bryan had been on, and to quote and quote unquote, he was coronated, which always didn't last very long. He was cashed in on um, a mere matter of seconds later, where Triple H hits him with a pedigree and Randy cashes in. Mm-hmm. Which then led us to the following Wrestlemania where we got that unbelievable match with Triple H and Daniel Bryan oh screamer of a match which opened opened Wrestlemania didn't it I'm sure it did it did unbelievable and then Brock Lesnar beats Undertaker on the same pay-per-view crowd is dead but who gets them back up again was Daniel Bryan in the image of him holding the title titles at the end of Wrestlemania 
will be one of the greatest images ever. But before we got to that point, and this is all a consequence of the match and Randy Orton cashing in, we got Randy, Randy, sorry, Bray Wyatt versus Daniel Bryan. I believe it was at Royal Rumble. Uh huh. That was another great, great match. It was, yep. We got, like it says, we then got Triple H and Daniel Bryan, and then we got, quote unquote, Daniel Bryan coronated again. And then even after that, the night after it, we got the start of the Shield versus Evolution. This is all direct consequences of the Daniel Bryan match and John Cena with Randy Orton cashing in on him. All direct consequences of that moment. Aye, because Daniel Bryan had quite a programme with the Shield during that sort of the Yes movement time, and mm-hmm. Sir Sam's actually doing. I think I've mentioned before that Sir Sam is doing a Lords of Pain column series all about the Yes movement. And this week he's talking in, de- in depth about the sort of relationship that Daniel Bryan had with the Shield. So you could say that was the Shield's popularity and eventual face turn was definitely a knock on effect from that as well. They benefited from being involved with Daniel Bryan and the whole authority stuff. Yep. But for me, outside of. Because the Cena match was great. Outside of, I loved the Bray Wyatt match, and I loved all those matches, Triple H, and then the Triple Threat match, and then where he wins it. There was a moment on Raw where I can't remember who their opponents were. Bray Wyatt and Daniel Bryan were in a tag match, I think, inside a cage. Ah, yes. Daniel Bryan's part of the Wyatt family. I can't remember if if this was pre Royal Rumble or post Royal Rumble. I think it was pre. Daniel Bryan you sure? I'm not not entirely sure if I'm honest it might have been post I think it was post so anyway but Daniel Bryan kind of decides there and then he doesn't want to be part of the Wyatts anymore and he's not going to be Bray Wyatt any longer he Bray charges at him Daniel Bryan starts kicking him takes off the takes off the the sort of um, the Wyatt uh, caution we had on um, commentary goes silent and all you hear is the yes from the crowd there was about a two to three minute moment where the crowd, where the commentary Michael Cole never said a single word must have been directed and people who were watching on the TV like ourselves it almost felt like we were there we were getting that energy and, and excitement and jubilation through the screen and that was one of the most iconic moments, I think, of his entire run. Just that little two, three, four minute segment there towards the end of Raw was 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 special to see. That was probably, I think that was, probably was my favourite moment in the whole Yes movement. There is one takeaway I have from that segment, and that is that Daniel Bryan was wearing the worst set of overalls I've ever seen on a person, on a human being. <laughs> Dreadful. <laughs> like some like a grey colour, weren't they? Ah, sort of bluey grey, and it was just yeah. oh, awful. Ruined the whole thing for me. <laughs> <laughs> but let's say that whole come that all comes back to the Daniel Bryan Cena match at SummerSlam. Mm-hmm. With, the cons- the, with the subsequent cashing. Um, and like I say, we we know that they weren't going to go with Daniel Bryan at WrestleMania and crowd, the crowds and the fans kind of changed that which were led to believe 
But let's just let's just say you painted this whole story out to someone who doesn't watch wrestling. It would be a genuine, true underdog story, and it, and it just from the moment he won the title at SummerSlam to being cashed in on all the way up to uh, to WrestleMania. If you just go back and you just look at it and you take out take out like if you pretend that you don't know what's happened or what's going to happen, you take away all this thing, this creative or booking or what we think we know about the business. If you just sit and watch it all, like unbelievable storytelling and just an unbelievable run. Uh-huh. One of the best the company's ever uh, done. Without a doubt, just do you know what? Like they think I think they were kind of, they were forced into obviously changing it at WrestleMania, but. Let's just pretend for a second that we didn't and just be like, do you know what? That was amazing. Aye. Unbelievable storytelling. Uh, random tangent, but we've been talking about Cena. Have you seen John Cena lately? Um, no. He is in China just now. I believe he's doing a house show and he's started doing a programme, like a fitness programme. Uh, Eye of Jackie Chan, it's called or something. He's always been £250 for as long as he's, he can remember in his career. But right now he is ripped. He says he's down to two, three, four pounds, uh, and it's quite the. It's almost as if he's going back to the prototype days where he's just got this bodybuilder physique, and it's quite striking. Because now he's, he's very heavily built, but there's quite a bit of padding there. Well, not anymore. It's gone. The padding's gone. I need to try and find this photo. Aye. I think uh, Carl, if you check Carl Anderson's Twitter, it might have been him who retweeted it and he was coming out with some rubbish patter about sending you a good brother's handshake from across the way or some shit like that. How long ago was this? Today. Oh, there it is. Can you Adam Jeez. and Eve that? Jeez. I know. So let's bring Cena back now. I want him in a match right now. Fair play, John. Look at his veins bulging. I know. That kind of doesn't look natural, but anyway. Well, let's not Who am I judge? Uh, so those were the sort of matches or programmes that we wanted to talk about a bit more at length, but has there been any matches, just sort of one-offs, whether there's been a long-going story or not, that you enjoyed on the night and just think, I'll remember them for a long time? Any off the top of your head that we haven't mentioned yet? Oh, there's a few. <laughs> There's a few. Be my guest. So, right. Let me see. Let me see. I've wrote written quite a few. So, Undertaker versus Edge. Hell in a Cell. Yes. Oh, fantastic match. So obviously the the, the backdrop the backdrop to the story was um, Edge. Remember when Edge beat Undertaker and he had to retire or leave the company or whatever, however they worded it. Mm-hmm. Edge the. <laughs> On Vicky Guerrero, <laughs> Vicky brings back Taker for this match at SummerSlam as kind of a way to get back at Edge. And like some, you could kind of argue this whole storyline, this feud started the year before when Edge attacked Taker with a camera. Remember it's Survivor Series. Yes, remember it very well. We spoke about this at length. Um, a couple of months ago, remember when we done that podcast about uh, money in the bank cash-ins, etc. Uh-huh. Um, so you could argue it started back then. So I actually watched this match on the train home today because I knew I was going. To, I, I knew one of us were going to bring it up. 
Undertaker comes into the, the cell and even JR says it and it was Taker slams the door shut and they were like that sound alone makes you terrified and if camera then panned to Edge and he's just got this look in his face that it say that he's not intimidated because Edge was great but at the same time remember Edge was also kind of was sadistic as well so it's not like he was going to be out of his comfort zone in such a match because he was all he was also kind of warped in the head. Um, the match was brutal. Some real ugly, na- nasty looking bumps. Where do you remember where Edge was on the top turnbuckle and take a choke slams him to the outside uh-huh. and through two tables they were sort of piled on top of one another. That's one of those moments that appears in a lot of those. Um holy shit compilations on YouTube yep so that if you go back and watch it see for the last sort of like two to three minutes of that match Taker beat the holy hell out of Edge like literally because it started from that table bump to going back into the ring where he hit him with the camera to then where he finishes him off or no he hit with him he done the concerto then finished him off he leaves the ring and Edge starts to move Taker comes back and sets up a ladder, puts him to the top of the ladder, climbs up and chokes him through the ring. I think that was one of the first, probably not one of the first times I've seen it, but it was still, at that point, it was still a holy shit kind of moment. And just, and this is how I finished, so I've written notes, and this is, a, no joke, this is how I finished writing my notes. Word for word, I'd written this, after, as soon as I finished watching the match, Edge is a fucking badass and fuck me what a match yep that was a, the perfect full stop on an absolutely fantastic feud between Undertaker and Edge that match was excellent it was it was unbelievable mm-hmm. and and the sad thing is when you go back and you see Taker what he's able to do then and you sort of see him now it it, it, it kind of does make you a bit sad but that match alone was excellent See, 2005 to 2010, Undertaker was sensational back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I've got, I've got. Have you, have you got a match, or do you want me to say another one? Or I on you go. You hit out with them, hit them out the park. Oh, Angle versus Austin. Oh, 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 chaos, utter chaos. Cut win, but he didn't. So he win by DQ. Like, I think Angle in the match, I think he took took quite a bit of a beating at times. He did. So did and, about three or four referees as well. Yep. And the beauty of that was, in the span of that match, or maybe like a few, or 24 hours or whatever, Angle went from, during the match that you felt sympathetic towards him, and then you kind of had the same feeling that I had after watching that Edge-Taker match, was like, cut is the man like he's he's just an absolute wrestling machine and uh, like you know that you it's just a beast because um, then we got that famous belt truck moment the following night on Raw was that the following night was it uh, um, yep it was the following night um, so like that match and it was in the midst of the whole um, invasion stuff yes and that was excellent not, not, not so much the invasion just the match itself um, 
like I say, it was just in that match alone in that 20-25 minute span that you went from being feeling really sympathetic and, and sad in a sense for Kurt Angle to then leaving that match thinking this is a he's an ass kicking machine yep uh, very appreciative of Austin's heel run at that time uh, and it, that was at its best that night because he was just a man possessed because uh, he also hit one of the referees as well I don't know if he low blowed him or hit him with a stunner but he, I think he because that's what ultimately caused another ref to come down uh, I think and say he no it's a DQ he laid out at least two referees that night that's right. That was that was a great great match. Yeah. And 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 the sad thing is, matches like that are almost going to be kind of forgotten because a lot of the things that took place in the invasion angle, a lot of people are just like let's forget about the invasion angle. But a lot of some great matches did take place during that invasion angle, and that's one of them. Invasion. The invasion angle is by far. It's nowhere near the bottom of my list. I quite enjoyed what went down there. Maybe it was a wee bit one sided, but. And you couldn't do anything with some of the sort of time owner contracts that people had, but I was a fan of it. So bizarre, so bizarre. Uh, a couple here that I've got, they both involve ladders. Uh, the TLC match, the first ever official TLC match. I know we had the triangle ladder match at WrestleMania that same year, but it was a bit, funnily enough, it was more slow paced. Uh, there was a more casual build to that one, but TLC at SummerSlam 2000 was just utter chaos. Um, Matt Hardy took a, ta- a ladder bump from the ring to the out through a table and he was facing the wrong way. It was one of those sort of roadrunner camera angles for that one. And I thought, see if, his, if Matt Hardy's head was two or three inches further back, he was smashing it off that barricade and it would have been lights out forever for Hardy that night. Horrible stuff. Well, Lita also took... Yes, a spear and was it was a table she almost hit. She hit the top end of a a prone ladder. Right, so you know, um, Bubba was launched from the top of the ladder to tables to the outside. Uh huh. I think Matt. It was the same with Matt as well. I think as well. Um, that might have been WrestleMania the following year. Was it right? And then well, this was where Jeff Hardy was swinging away at the top, like. That was, um, that was WrestleMania as well. Oh, was it? See, I'm, there's just so many that I'm... They do merge into up. one, really, but... It's hard to pick... Uh, for for instance, the that... There's an argument to, made, to be made that, that TL, the first TLC match there we're talking about is the greatest TLC match ever. In terms of multi-man, yes. Mm-hmm. And I think at the time, we just genuinely didn't know what the hell to expect. And we didn't... I mean, we knew and, what it would be like with the triangle ladder match at Wrestlemania but this mm-hmm. was just a thousand miles an hour non-stop it was um, you said you had another one yes um, CM Punk and Jeff Hardy at SummerSlam 2009 I believe it was a TLC yes. match as well actually yes uh, and it was was this this wasn't the loser leaves no the loser the loser leaves took place that was a um, cage match wasn't it yeah I th- it was either a couple of weeks later or maybe a month later uh huh I think that might have been even been on a SmackDown. Aye, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that was a paper, but that certainly was just after it because Punk had actually lost the title the previous month or a couple of months before it to Jeff Hardy, and then that's when he started to go into his 
when he started then picking on Jeff's drug problems and talking about he was, he was straight edge and he's alcohol free, drug free, etc, etc. Um, so in that match itself, um, did Jeff Hardy took a swanton bomb from the top of the ladder, which was one of the biggest ladders sports in history. See that? A lot of people talk about Mick Foley falling off the cell, the hell in the cell at King of the Ring. I think that's worse, what Jeff Hardy did, because it was a ladder, so there's there's balance issues there, and he lands neck first, and he's got to have his aim perfect so that he lands, not the right word here, so he lands safely on CM Punk through the commentary table. That is one of the most insane bumps I've ever seen. Yeah, and I think, but I think the thing with, with Mick Foley's one was that I think he was higher. Was but, he? Was he though? Because I'd like. Have been, I'm not sure, but I think the thing with him was that there was no like padding underneath the commentary table. Like uh-huh. as he hit, it just explodes, and then you hit whatever's there. But I've got a question for you. Yes, ask away. So that Jeff Hardy Punk match is one of the absolute all-time great TLC matches. Was this the truly last great performance from Jeff Hardy in a WWE ring? Uh, uh-huh. Because remember, he then left and went to Impact for about five years or so, I think it was, before he came back. Because they've been back now for what? Been back just over a year. I mean, the matches that he had with the bar were all right. But that was definitely the last best match he's had. I think it was. I mean, it wasn't in on WWE for much longer after that. No, no, like I'm saying, I'm training so from now, from that moment up until so basically for the last sort of like 16, 17 odd months or so. I think it was the last true great performance from him, and I think that will be the last truly, truly, like truly great performance from him. He might have had the odd barn burner in TNA, but not that I'm aware of. And I suppose uh, there is the final deletion and stuff like that, but that's nothing. Final deletion's good fun, but that that TLC match was excellent. And and this was in the midst of him having a lot of like problems like when it comes to drugs etc that's what the story was wasn't it yep so but I think I think it was like I said I think that probably was the last real great performance for me and we might never see another great like one on that level again uh-huh. so give me a couple more of your favourite matches and I'll, then I'll do a couple and then we'll do a wee quiz Punk and Lesnar yes very good this uh, is my favourite Brock Lesnar match since his second run. Mm-hmm. Like this match was just even from the storytelling, from how from the start of the feud where Punk tells Paul Heyman he doesn't like the kind of what let's put some distance between ourselves at the moment. Heyman didn't take too kindly to it, and Brock comes down and attacks him. Heyman costs, I think I think Punk was in the Money in the Bank match. Or he cost him a, a potential title shot, Yes, I think, at right. Money in the Bank. He turned on then, Punk that night. 
Mm-hmm. And then the match itself, it was that perfect. It was a perfect um, clash of styles. You had the power and just raw brute strength of Brock up against the technique and speed of CM Punk. Punk was continually sort of fighting off the back foot in a sense that, like, because Brock was a bigger man, he was going to take control of the match, etc. But some pretty good moments and spots in that match where I remember um, Punk had him in the triangle and Brock sort of, like, power bombs him out of it. You had... Do you remember they had the top of the, the table, the commentary table, that bit you rip off? Brock picks it up and puts it on top of CM Punk and proceeds to start jumping on it with Punk underneath it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like I said, I honestly think this was Brock's best match of his second run. I think this was better than the AJ match as well. Probably, yeah. And then you had CM Punk doing a Mike Tyson to Brock Lesnar's ear as well in the match. <laughs> um, yeah, man. Honestly, from the moment the feud began to that end of that match... Um, unbelievable stuff the match itself you, at the time going into it I remember that I, I honestly wasn't expecting that much I wasn't expecting it to be as great as I, that as it was going to be because I was kind of expecting Lesnar to just completely dominate yep. but what we got was just a real it's an unbelievable match um, like I say is, that is my most favourite Brock match and no surprise it was CM Punk that got out of him because Punk at that point was just untouchable. It's one of the very... And everything he done. One of the very rare occurrences where we get a match with Brock Lesnar and a smaller guy and it's one of the best matches we've had. I mean, the AJ Styles match that they had last year was probably his best, one of his best matches since he came back, one of the better matches of 2017 overall. Uh, in the match, the CM Punk story was that he's not afraid of Lesnar and that came across very much so in the match itself, so lots of plaudits for that one I have to say so give us another one <sighs> right to you all. Um, I don't know if you remember it I'm, this isn't one, but I'm just I've because I've, I've written quite a few things. And was it 2002 Kurt versus Rey Mysterio? Of course, I remember it. Yes, <laughs> that was argument to be made that that's probably the greatest opening match ever. Best curtain jerker. Like that was just unbelievable as well. If less than 15 minutes, it felt like a very short match, but quite the story was told there. Where. Mm-hmm. Mysterio, I think that was his debut pay-per-view. Um, you got to see all his skills with his head at the end, obviously. <laughs> I don't know why, obviously, actually. Um, that was the first time for the very wider audience uh, you got to see what Mysterio was all about. And he took Kurt Angle to task. Kurt Angle was shaken. Um, but Kurt Angle won at the end of the day. It was basically them, him saying, all right, you're good, but you're not on my level yet. But the ten, twelve minutes, whatever it was, fantastic match. Excellent match. Um, have you got anything? Yes, I've got two more. Uh, Triple H and HBK from the same year, 
see that 2000, 2002, man, that, that was just a ridiculous. I'm going to bring up the card very quickly. That that could have been the greatest summer song ever. One of them, anyway. I would say so, it is. Unsanctioned match? Yes, Triple H and Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels had returned from exile, exodus, whatever he was, cleansing his body, cleansing his soul, and all that, carry on. Uh, just crazy. An unsanctioned match. We've probably not seen one as violent as that. We have seen many as violent as that, but it was a great story told, and I think there was just that fear that Shawn Michaels kind of retired because his back was done in. And the damage that he took to his back in that match was crazy, and you were just wondering, oh. Well, that was kind of one of the couple of stories going into it, you know, because um, it was supposed to be just kind of be, I believe, like a one-off sort of kind of thing, or just a, a quick, a quick mini run, just as how to have some closure on his career, because it kind of ended abruptly, mm-hmm. and then maybe a year, maybe less than a year later, there he is full time. And he's about to do this for like another eight, nine, ten years or so. Aye, something like that. Goes on to produce, in my mind, the greatest WrestleMania match ever against The Undertaker. So, like I said, it was supposed to be like a one-time thing, or like I said, it wasn't supposed to. It, it wasn't supposed to be, become what it did. The match itself, like I said, a lot of bumps to his back because that was kind of one of the stories going into it. Another kind of thing was that Triple H saying that you left you left I took up the mantle uh, and now I, I I grabbed the brass ring mm-hmm. I don't need you like I was kind of like um, he was in your I was stuck in your shadow etc etc I'm the man so the the, the turned they turned it into like a really personal personal feud uh-huh. and it was just beautiful to watch beautiful barbaric because um, like you say you were worried looking back on it you were you were unsure grimi- grim- yeah, you were unsure grimacing like oh my goodness he's back like and then the sledgehammer to the bottom of the back after the match mm-hmm. crazy stuff I've got I've... just just like that moment I think when you saw the sledgehammer to the back Triple H went up a few levels on the bastard scale <laughs> the official bastard scale <laughs> You know, like, he'll like, oh, you are not a likeable person at all. So there's heel, there's chicken shit heel, and there's the bastard scale heel. Yep. Uh, I've pulled up that 2002 card, so overall, pre-show with Spike Dudley and Stephen and Richards. Uh, Kurt Angle, Rey Mysterio, Ric Flair, Jericho. Edge, Eddie Guerrero, Jesus. Christian and Lance Storm versus Booker T and Goldust, RVD and Chris Benoit. Uh, Undertaker and Test and Triple H and Shawn Michaels and Lesnar and The Rock my word few, a few odd ones on paper but I'm sure they were good on the night because just a fantastic pay per view from top to bottom as far as I can remember um, unbelievable one more I wanted to give a shout out to it's one of those ones where it gets hidden away on a pre-show but New Day versus The Usos from last year um, the story told in the, the Bar versus Mini Shield match the same night was probably a better story, but see for just wrestling quality, that New Day Usos match was cracking. If you've not seen it because it was on the pre-show, I implore you to seek it out because it was a fucking belter. Just go watch every single New Day Usos match. 
because they just seem to be getting better and better and better. Just um, don't watch the one with um, the Bludgeon Brothers. <laughs> um, do you remember the finish of that match? Where I don't know, remember which Uso it was, but one Uso throws Xavier out the ring, and mm. the other one hits him with a small drop oh, as he's coming out the ring. That's right. Fucking hell! Oh, that that was unbelievable. It was. It was almost. He just about connected with it as well. It almost um, looked botched, didn't it? It did, but it looked it, it, unbelievable. Like the chemistry those two teams have are just is great. Mm-hmm. And you know how sometimes you get feuds that you're just desperate to go over and done with. I can watch those guys if they have a, if they have a feud for the next year. I'm going to be sitting there watching it. Aye, they're, they're like it was that good. Chemistry. So there we go. That's. There's probably been many moments and many matches and many talking points that we have missed. Feel free to hit us up on Twitter with that stuff, at Ricky and Clive on Twitter and Facebook. Um, but it's half past ten on a Tuesday night. I have to get up early for 205 Live column. So we're going to come bring the show to a close. But before that, Ricky, would you like to take the reins and do a quiz for us tonight? Yeah, why not? Why, why not? Okay, go for it. It's fucking quiz time with Ricky and Clive and friends. A fucking WWE quiz. Right, yo, here we go. You'll be pleased to know that it's your favourite. Who am I? Yes. Okie doke. I am in the Hall of Fame. But I have never won a world title. Okay. I am a three time tag champion. <sighs> Any more clues? I am a one time intercontinental champion. Ah, one time that throws Ref Jarrett out the window. <laughs> One time I see three-time tag, not a world title, but in the Hall of Fame. I have family in the WWE right now, active wrestlers. British Bulldog? Nope. I don't want to say what, I don't want to say what relation they are because that would give away too easily so the final one oh I know the answer ok and you go Cody Rhodes no alright ok what's Who's that is it? isn't in the Hall of Fame well he fucking well should be <laughs> final clue I did it for the rock <laughs> Jesus <laughs> the Sultan himself Rikishi Fatu well done. Right. I am a current wrestler who is a one-time tag team champion. A current wrestler? Um, Jason Jordan. Do you not want more clues? I'm guessing that's the wrong answer. Yes. I am a two-time United States champion. 
Okay. I am a two-time world champion. What was the first clue? Uh, I am a current wrestler who is a one-time tag team champion. Okay, right. Have you got any more clues? Because I've got nothing. So I gave you that one. I gave you a two-time world champion, two-time US champion. I am a two-time United States champion. Mm-hmm. You want another clue? Please. You said that one, I think. Oh, sorry. Oh, it'll be two times intercontinental then. So he's won both twice. Oh. Sorry. Two times I see. I've, I've not got a Scooby-Doo. Not a clue. Sorry, I don't know why I say it's two time. I see that's a mistake on my part. Six time. Six time, sorry. Well, that fucking changes things, does it not? That does, yeah. Is it the I myth? wrote down. I wrote down the US champ one twice, sorry. Six time. Six times I see. Dolph Ziggler. Correct. Okay. Okay. Number three. I am <clears throat> an eight-time t- eight tag champion. That's a lot. That is. I am also a four-time IC champion. You sure it's four times? Yes. Right. I am a three-time US champion. Oh, if it's eight times IC, then it's the Miz. No, I didn't say eight. It was eight-time tag champion. Right. Four-time IC, three-time US. I have never won a world title. So it's definitely not the Miz. That's a lot of gold for a a mid carder. Do you want your final clue? Yes, please. I am on a SmackDown roster. Today. Mhm. Eight tag. Mhm. Four IC. Mhm. No world. Mhm. I'm racking my brains for the Smackdown roster right now. (laughs) (laughs) R-Truth? No. No clue. Final clue. My accent has disappeared over the years. Oh, (laughs) Kofi. (laughs) Right. I made my debut... In 2012 on Smackdown. Right. I am a one-time US title champion. Okay. I am a one-time winner of a Slammy Award. (laughs) Well, that definitely narrows it down then. I am a five-time tag team champion. One more for me, please. I am a former winner of the Andre the Mo- Mo- Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal. Cesaro. Yes. And the final one. Ah, right, okay. 
I made my WWE debut in 2001. WWE debut in 2001. Okay. I have won a combined 15 titles. 15 different championship reigns in the WWE. Okay. Any, any title that is. I am a former Money in the Bank winner. Uh, RVD? Sorry, who? RVD. Correct. Oh, nice. You all five, right? Well done. Thank you. Did I get all five right? No, I mean, you got a bit of an extra clue for some of them, but anyway, it doesn't uh, matter. You got it right. Got them right after guessing them wrong, basically. Yes, yep. So, can you tell me, when is SummerSlam? Um, ten, ten days. Oh, so there's only one more episode of the Ricky and Clive show before then? Yeah, so next week will be the preview, and then the week after... Will be the, we'll re- be the review. Re- the review with one or more guests. We're not Ricky and Clive show and friends for fuck all, guys. And like I say, we, we captured a big fish at the moment. Yep. Okay, I'm looking forward to it. It should be exciting, as well as the Outsiders Edge thing we've got going mm. on as well. Card subject to change, just in case. Yes, folks, subject to change. But you know what isn't subject subject to change, folks? Oh, here we go. The Ricky and Clive Wrestling Show. We will be here, folks, next week. Yes, in any shape, way, or form, or guys, we'll be here with our... SummerSlam preview show. <laughs> We've just sort of recycled the last minute and a half there. I know. We're finishing each other's sentences as well. Yep. Follow us... On Twitter and Facebook at Ricky and Clive. Um, check out the Social Suplexes Facebook group, which is the Wrestling Squared Circle. You can find us there. Check out the rest of Social Suplexes podcasts, which are One Nation Radio, Outsiders Edge, Keeping It Strong Style, and Grown Men Watch This Shit. As far as I'm aware, James Boyd's back on One Nation Radio. Good to have him back on. Please rate and review those podcasts and the Social Suplex when you do the search thing on your app, whatever you call it, on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a review. Five stars, algorithms and all that stuff. Um, socialsuplex.com has columns. You find mine on there. We've got Tom Gambardello's. Sorry if I've butchered your name. Doing NXT stuff. Um, different co- um, columns and you can get them subscribed, sent to your email inbox if you subscribe. I think I've covered everything. I think you have. Shout out, biggest shout out of all time to Peter Carnivals, who has been an absolute entertainment powerhouse on Twitter this week. <laughs> Without a doubt. Without a doubt. He has, he's won Twitter this last seven days yeah. or so. He broke the internet on a few occasions. Um, I don't think I've got any more shout outs unless you want Thank to. Thank you for listening to the Ricky and Clive Wrestling Podcast. We'll see you next time. time. No, right, guys. Speak to you next week, okay? Take care, folks. Night, night.